follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain, living in Canada, and who's worked in the U.S. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Our topic today is memory and memories. You know, these days we hear a lot about loss of memory in connection with feared brain conditions like Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease leads to loss of memory, even to the extent that the person may no longer recognize their lifetime spouse. We hear that Alzheimer's disease in particular is associated with aging, but what we hear much less about is the way in which memory and memories are affected by the normal processes of aging, something about which we all need to know much, much more. So to talk about memory and memories, our guest today is Professor Steve Jordan. Steve is a cognitive psychologist who specializes in research in memory and and consciousness. He's a faculty member at the University of Toronto Scarborough um, campus since 1995. He's taught a wide range of courses, including memory and cognition, statistics, and most recently, introduction to psychology. He won the Premier's Research Excellence Award in 2001, for his research on memory. And with his PhD student, Dwayne Paré, he won the National Technology Innovation Award in 2009 for the research and development of Peer Scholar, an online tool to support the development of critical thinking skills. He's also won various prestigious teaching awards, including the President's Teaching Award, the highest award for teaching at the University of Toronto, and the Leadership in Faculty Teaching Award, not sure I got that quite right, but from the the province of Ontario. He's twice been a finalist in TV Ontario's Best Lecturer competition, and most recently he's recorded a course with the great courses entitled Memory Across Lifespan. Welcome to the show, Steve. Oh, thank you. Very flattering introduction. I appreciate that. Now, Steve, first off, Please tell us what cognitive and cognition mean and how these relate to memory and memories. Sure. 
well, a lot of your listeners have probably seen pictures of the brain, so-called fMRI scans, and that shows you what the brain looks like, sort of what the brain is. Cognition is much more about what the brain does, um, the, the manner in which it takes in information from the real world, processes it to meet whatever uh, goals we have at any given time, and then ultimately controls behavior. So it's, it's really all of the mental processes, some of which are going on um, quite readily without our awareness or without our involvement, really, at least our conscious involvement, and others are much more conscious, and those conscious ones are what we would call thoughts. So cognition kind of embodies all of those things. Right. Now, you and um, your PhD student, Duane Paré, won a very important award for your research. What was the research? What yeah. did it discover and what did it lead to? Sure. Um, well, the research really is aimed at developing these cognitive processes, especially the higher level ones that we associate with, uh, with critical thinking. Um, as we'll dis discuss as we get into memory in more detail, really almost every cognitive process that we use involves memory in some way. So from a psychology perspective, any time the past influences us and changes the way we behave, then that influence is, is considered a memory influence. And one of the things I'm hoping to do in university is to give students practice really with critical thinking, creative thinking, and clear expression. It's something that I think is often lacking at universities, that we really focus on teaching content. Um, but really, these cognitive processes are not that unlike physical processes, like the proverbial riding a bike. They're the kinds of things that students need practice doing. Uh, you can't go to the gym once a month and expect a benefit. You have to go three times a week. And so th that's the same idea where we have devised this uh, Internet technology that really supports these assignments that push students to think critically, to think creatively, to constantly look back at their own thoughts um, and gauge um, how good they were, so kind of self-evaluation, to ultimately produce a project. And, and again, the whole idea is just to give them lots of experience so that this kind of thinking becomes habitual, habit being another form of memory. So the message, which I'm getting, which I think is a very powerful one, is that critical thinking is something which can, in fact, either be taught and or exercised, practiced with, in such a way that it gets better through that kind of use. Have I understood you right? You have indeed, and, and we've shown um, from our data that that is in, case, uh, is, is in fact the case that as students are exposed to these critical thinking assignments, and, and the critical thinking, by the way, often involves a, a critical component is what we call peer assessment. So it involves them looking at the work of their peers and evaluating that work and giving their peers feedback on how they could improve. And, and by we're better at criticizing others than we are at criticizing ourselves. So we begin with that, have them criticize others, and then along the way occasionally we'll ask them, well, okay, now look at your own work. Um, if, if you were a peer looking at your work, what would you evaluate? And sure enough, we've shown that if students get a lot of practice doing this, their ability to evaluate the work of others and to accurately evaluate the quality of their own work does in fact um, become steadily better with increasing practice. Okay, very interesting. Tell us more about the way in which you actually do this research into memory and memories. Yeah, so there's 
in a way, kind of two lines of, of my research. So I do some very basic research on memory, and then the peer scholar work we're talking about is more about sort of applying that work in the classroom and, and in situations where it would have more of a direct effect. But I, I want to kind of step back to the basic research a little bit because I think that might get us more towards some of the issues uh, that your audience would be interested in. And that basic research really tries to get at the different kinds of memory and how they interact. Uh, because the first thing I almost always say when someone asks me about memory is that memory is, in fact, not a singular noun. It's much more a plural verb. Uh, and what I mean by that is we don't have a single memory system. Uh, we have multiple memory systems. And they, they all kind of do different things, and they support our effective functioning in different ways. Uh, and they don't, and they aren't really things like a bed that has a function. They're more like processes that actually are constantly doing things, changing information. So my more basic research is is very much uh, focused on how conscious memory systems, the ones we typically speak of when we talk to each other, interact with uh, the unconscious memory systems. And, and to give you a sense of that, things like familiarity, that if somebody had driven a certain route several times, maybe a route to a, a friend's house, and then maybe they hadn't driven that route for 10 years, but for whatever reason they're on that path and they're thinking, geez, I think my friend used to live here, they can almost find their way just by looking at each corner and taking the direction that feels right. Uh, and that's a sort of unconscious memory influence, where the past can speak to us in ways that aren't, that don't come along with the full re-experience of an, of an event, but instead kind of push us and guide us along. So habits and familiarity do that. So I'm really interested in how those two interact in a lot of the work I do. I'm just going to ask you a bit more about the way in which you do that research. You're yeah. very clear about what the research is pointing at and pointing to, mm -hmm. but what do you actually do? When you okay, so let, let's give a, a nice concrete example of a sort. Um, th this will bring the research to a slightly more mundane level, but that's where most primary research lives. And So one example is um, in some of the memory studies, we use what is, what's called a recognition memory test. Uh, and there, in fact, there, there are many different, rec uh, many different forms of memory tests. A recognition test works as follows. We will show some list, let's say a list of words, and maybe we show 40 words. And we tell our participants, look at those words and do whatever you can to remember them as well as you can. And, and 40 is a lot of words. So for the most part, subjects are reading them and just trying their best. We then give them um, those 40 words again mixed with a set of what we call new words. So maybe 80 words altogether. We scramble them all up, show them one at a time, and we just ask people, do you think this particular word was in the list or not? And so that's called a recognition test, and we're actually supporting memory pretty strongly. We're showing the whole item and just saying, but do you recognize it from previously? And as one example, if you, if you mix in common words, say a word like table, and very uncommon words, perhaps a word like scurvy, uh, what you'll see is some interesting things. So, so people will consciously remember the uncommon words better. And, and they will also remember when they weren't presented. So to an extent, if they see scurvy at test, if it was presented, they'd say, ah, yeah, I remember seeing that. I remember what I was thinking about when I saw that. If it wasn't presented, they will say things like, ah, no, no, I would have remembered that one. So I know it wasn't presented. But the common items, like table, 
they um, they can't consciously remember them so easily, but if pushed to guess, they will often say, yes, it was in the list, because it feels so familiar. So that the familiarity can make it feel like it was there, but it does so without any conscious knowledge of the item being there. So those are the types of paradigms we use to try to tease apart these influences. We, we try to find situations where conscious and unconscious memory are pushing performance in different ways, and then we play with variables and see what, see what we see. So really what it comes to, as I understand it, is that you're actually testing both the conscious and the unconscious memory in a way that you can allocate a score to and measure in numbers. Is that right? That, that's right. In a sense, what we're trying to do is, is create a tug-of-war kind of situation where we have conscious memory pulling behavior in one direction and unconscious memory pulling behavior in the other direction. And then, for example, we can look at how certain variables, let's say age, age of the participant, how it may shift that balance. And if one memory system... Um, weakens more than another, then we will literally see a shift in the data uh, that reflects that change in the memory system. Interesting. Yeah. Now, I've got to remember something, and that is that it's time for us to take a short break. And this is what we're going to do because we have to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Steve Jordans. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay, stay with us. We're coming back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately 1 in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica, hosted by Terry Aranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The violent crime rate has begun to rise again. So what's more important than feeling at ease and secure in your daily life? 
With an optimistic perspective on a sober subject, crime prevention and personal safety expert Susan Bartlestone brings you the information, tips, resources, and inspiring success stories that will reduce your fear and restore your confidence. So stay tuned and stay safe with Crime Prevention 101 and Susan Bartlestone. Every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, here on Voice America. It'd be a crime not to listen. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Help, you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Steve Jordan's. Our, mem- our topic is memory and memories. So... Steve, let's talk more about memory and memories and how these actually work. So let me start with a huge question. How actually does memory work? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it turns out that that really is a huge question for a number of reasons, the, the first of which being what I already alluded to, that there really is no single memory. But that said, um, when most of us talk about memory with each other, there is a kind of memory that we usually refer to. It's what psychologists call episodic memory. That's the sort of memory that allows us to literally replay episodes uh, in our mind. So if I were to ask uh, the listeners, uh, can you tell me what you had for supper last night? Uh, For most listeners, they can do that. Uh, It takes them a while. Often it's surprising how difficult a question like that can be. Uh, but typically, if you give them a little bit of time, they can tell you what they had. And if you, but if you then also ask them, well, did anything else happen in, in your mind? They will usually say, well, yes, indeed. I, I kind of saw myself again having dinner. Um, I remember who I was seated with. I Perhaps if we were in front of the TV, maybe have some memory of what we were watching, kind of know what time of day it was. And overall, they will basically report a sense of reliving the episode, um, literally replaying the past in, in a form. Uh, so that kind of memory is the kind of all of our kinds that does show some deterioration with age, uh, although I want to come back to the term deterioration in a little while. But most of our other memory systems, by the way, the ones that we use to do crossword puzzles, the ones that we use to uh, underlie all the skills that we have acquired through our lifetime, most of them are preserved with aging. It's just this episodic memory that's problematic. And the big reason for that, to get to the question of how does memory work, is because in order to uh, retrieve an episodic memory well, you have to first spend a lot of time encoding it well. At the time you actually experience the event, you have to associate it with other things that are already in your mind. And that's really, if I had to give you one word about how does memory work, it's via association. It takes new information, and if you're able to somehow attach it to information already in your mind, then every bit of information you can attach it to provides a fishing line of a sort that you can later use to pull that experience back out. Uh, And that's the critical thing. And as we begin to talk about aging, um, that's the point where a lot of these memory systems have 
trouble, is if, if we're not encoding deeply enough, we're not going to retrieve very well. Okay. Let's talk about how the brain stores memories and how it retrieves them. And if I could just quickly say, the concept of storing um, is, I find, quite baffling because what actually is it doing? It's not putting books on a shelf or putting data on a hard drive or something of that nature. What is it actually doing and how does it get that memory back? Yeah, it, it absolutely is not putting books on a shelf, as you say. Um, and in fact, some of the most interesting aspects of memory are, to some extent, the errors that are produced when we try to bring back a memory, even when we feel we've done so accurately. Uh, so very briefly, let me mention uh, a researcher named Bartlett from England uh, many years ago who would tell people a story, uh, a famous story called The War of Ghosts. It's famous because it was very oddly written. It, it was written um, to suit a Native American culture, and a lot of the assumptions and the word usage were not the type that most British people encountered. So Bartlett would read them the story, uh, and then he would ask them at various intervals to read the story back to him. And what he found is that they made a lot of regularization errors. They would make the story more normal for them. So religious references would become uh, references to the religions of England. Um, you know, be them, well, <laughs> we won't go into the religions of England. Uh, but uh, they would basically make the story make sense to them. And the, what we learned about memory and all that is that when we put information into memory, we're not putting the whole experience. We're storing various little bits. And even as you say, the idea of what, what do we mean by storage, it seems that by storage, what we're really doing is strengthening or weakening connections between neurons that will allow those neurons to kind of recreate some event. So certain bits of the information um, alter our brain structure in ways that if we begin getting to that part of a, of a pattern again, they can rebuild a pattern of a past event, but they rebuild it inaccurately. And so we may feel like we're accurately replaying an event. Some of what we replay is correct, is accurate. Some of it is filled in. The brain makes assumptions. So if you're remembering a, a trip to, let's say, Jamaica, you will remember certain tidbits accurately, but you'll also fill in things from what you know about Jamaica, what you knew, know about who you were at the time and the people you were with, and you will sort of use that glue to make it a whole memory. You really only have pieces, but you turn it into a whole memory, and the real kicker is most of us can't tell the difference between the accurate recalled bits and the filled-in bits. And so that's why quite often you can find yourself arguing, let's say, with a spouse, about often some mundane detail, um, but you can be 100% sure you're accurate, and they can be 100% sure they're accurate, but clearly you're not both accurate. So somebody is very confident while being very wrong. And memory can produce that situation quite frequently, um, much to our embarrassment, where we can be confident in, in an inaccurate retrieval. So the word retrieve that I used isn't right. It's recreate. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was that was in fact Bartlett's real big point and real big contribu contribution is that memories are not retrieved. They are in fact rebuilt every time. And every time we rebuild it, that has an effect on the next time we rebuild it. So they're constantly evolving. Our memories of events are changing with each retelling. 
Okay, that leads to the next question. What happens in the brain when we forget something? Mm. When does that happen and why does that happen? Yeah. Uh, well, there's a couple of ways. I mean, one of the funny twists on that question is sometimes we, we wish to forget information and, and we cannot. So the, the point of that being that forgetting is not something that's under our control very well. Uh, and it seems to be largely under the control of, of those fishing lines I told you earlier, those, those hooks. So when we store a memory, we, um, if, if we store it really well, we will associate it with lots of other things, and those things will help us to retrieve it. Sometimes that can work against us. So if we, if we meet somebody that um, we become quite enamored with, we start to see maybe in a romantic way, you go to certain places, you listen to certain music, you, you have certain experiences. Every, all of those things become these sort of fishing lines, as it were, uh, associated with that person. Now suddenly that person becomes someone you wish you'd never met and never had anything to do with. But if you now go to that restaurant or you hear that song, that can still pull the memory out and cause a, a failure to forget something we want to forget. So on the flip side, why do we really forget? Well, that's often because we haven't properly built those lines. We haven't really hooked in this new information as well as we might have. And so we can often feel like, I know I know something. I know what that person's name is. I know I heard it, but I just can't pull it out of memory. And that's typically because we didn't do a good enough job putting it in in the first place. When you were talking before about your research and, and critical analysis and critical faculties and so on, yeah. um, you made very clear that this is something that people can practice and, in fact, perhaps be taught. Now, what about this question, then, of making sure that you do remember something that you know you really do have to remember? What about that? Is that yeah. the sort of thing that can be trained? It absolutely can, and, and I have to, on, on that point, mention a, a fascinating book by Jonathan Foer um, called Moonwalking with Einstein that's all about um, him following a bunch of people who are involved in a memory competition. So there's, in fact, an, an international and there's a number of national memory competitions where these individuals um, perform these memory feats on the fly, things like they will be given two decks of cards and a certain amount of time to memorize the order of every card in both decks. And they can do this in, in surprisingly short periods of time, like about a half an hour. The point of that book is these people were uh, claiming to Jonathan that they do not have any special talents. They simply have spent a lot of time working on these techniques, techniques that involve forming those associations um, that I've been kind of highlighting. And uh, Jonathan for himself decided to give it a try and, in fact, came in third in the American Memory Championships in, in doing so. I hope I didn't give away the, the ending point of the book there. But, yes, so, I mean, that, that's a, a really nice example that you can, in fact, train your memory, and it's something that has been done since uh, the days of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. People used to do this a lot more than we do nowadays. Why do you think, just to answer, turn that into a question, why do yeah. Did they do it a lot more then and not so much now? Yeah, uh, well, many reasons. One of them um, was, if, if we think, consider a religious perspective, for example, that a lot of the ancient books, a lot of the before the days of you know, widespread use of, of printing, there were limited copies of these uh, texts around. So 
somebody who would spend the time memorizing this textbook would now become a resource in, in and of itself. Uh, even in Victorian times, it was it was considered a virtue. If um, I guess if somebody was suiting your suiting your daughter, is that the right use of the verb? Um, interested in your daughter, if they could come over to your house and let's say recite a poem that was maybe four pages long, but if they could recite it from memory, what that kind of told you as a prospective parent-in-law was that this person was willing to put forth a lot of work and a lot of effort. Um, to to do this, to be able to uh, encode all this information and recite it accurately, and that spoke well of their work ethic uh, in general. And so it was something that was very lauded for for many years as good. both good mental training and um, that virtue. Steve, I'm going to have to stop you there because yep. we do. I've remembered that we do have to take the break. Yep. Well, we'll come back to these things. So time to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Adley. My guest is Steve Jordans. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We are coming back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Ever wondered what private investigators really do and how they go about solving cases? Each week, P.I.'s Declassified gives a glimpse into this little-known world. Join your host, Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator, in conversations with detectives and experts in the field. False confessions, forensic evidence, finding missing persons, exposing fraud, exonerating the innocent. All areas that Francie and her guests will cover, and have they got stories to tell. Tune in and call in to the live show Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. 
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Steve Jordan's. Our topic is memory and memories. Now, let's talk about memory and memories as we get older. You've mentioned this a couple of times in various ways. So first of all, just a basic question, Steve. Is it true that memory is affected by aging? And if so, how? And in what ways is it, is it affected? And then, as a supplementary to that, in what ways do we as individuals notice these effects as we age? Yeah, yeah. So, so almost, first of all, we have to step back, I think, to the very first thing you highlighted in, in the beginning of this um, uh, interview, which is there's a very strong distinction between normal aging of memory systems and uh, so-called dementia of the Alzheimer's type, which is a very catastrophic loss of memory. Um, so one of the worries many people have, and I'll, and I'll see if I can bring this in sometimes, is how can you tell the difference? If it's my mother or if it's myself personally, um, when should I be becoming worried that what I'm experiencing is not normal aging? So for normal aging, um, one of the really kind of hopeful things is, has come out lately is that um, while there are effects, the effects seem quite restricted and when you think of it the right way, you can put, I guess, a positive spin on it. So what I mean by that is there are a lot of these different memory systems. And um, one of the ironic things I see is people will, for example, uh, do crossword puzzles to keep their memory young. Crossword puzzles are fantastic. That's great. But that's really testing your memory, your knowledge of the world. And it turns out that our knowledge of the world, our so-called semantic memory, does not decline with age. We tend to hold on to that very well. The things we know, we tend to, to keep. What we lose is that episodic memory that I've been highlighting earlier, um, and especially episodic memory for more recent events. So the events that you experienced in your early life, you tend to remember quite well, but ex events that happened yesterday or the day before, uh, much more recent events, people have a lot more trouble um, remembering. And, and sometimes these two things can interact in funny ways. A classic example that we all, all have experienced from different perspectives uh, is the older person who is telling us a story that they've told many times and that we've heard many times. Uh, this individual is remembering some story, some previous event in their life, and they're remembering that quite well. But what they're forgetting is that they've already told us that story sometime in the recent so in the recent past. So the far past they're remembering well, the recent past not so well. Why is that? Here's the real kind of hopeful um, side of it, or, or at least the more positive view on it. One of the notions, I, I've, been, I've been emphasizing encoding that when you, when you come in contact with the information, if you think about it hard and associate it with other things, then you can in fact uh, enhance your memory. Well, one of the stories about aging is that as we age, and especially as we reach retirement, a lot of the little details of life are not so relevant. Um, the, when, when you're, let's say, a 45-year-old, you may be worried about issues at your job, things you have to get done, certain deadlines, you have to pick up the kids, you've got to remember to get groceries, you've got a list of to-do items for your house that you're trying to get to. All of these little details constantly running through your mind. You're constantly kind of refreshing your list of things to do. And you're really practicing that sort of detail-oriented approach to the world. When you retire, a lot of those things simply are not relevant anymore. You're not picking up kids. You don't have all these stresses of work. 
And the claim is that a lot of people naturally stop worrying so much about the details. And so that this is sort of a form of cognitive transition that you could almost think of as a, a cognitive form of the physical puberty that happens when people are young, that when they get older, they just, they just kind of change the way they approach the world. And that they focus less on details, they worry about less, worry about details less, and that just one side effect of that is poorer memory, um, but that it shouldn't necessarily be viewed as uh, just a horrible thing. It may be just a natural result of this cognitive transition. So it isn't by itself that phenomenon you've just described anything that might signal awful things about to happen to your memory and the development of these dreadful conditions. Is that right? That, that's right. So what people normally notice is a lot of this detail-oriented stuff starts disappearing. So they, they forget where all their, their keys are. They have the handset from their cordless phone, and they put it down somewhere, and literally they weren't paying attention when they put it down, so they can't remember where that is. It's these little annoyance kinds of things, which are quite different from a, a, a patient of early Alzheimer's, very early on, may show some of that, but very early on they're also going to show something that's much more catastrophic, much more... Uh, they will walk into a room, for example, and not recognize anyone in the room, even though it's their family. Um, or they will find themselves on a street corner, and even though they recognize everything on the street corner, they cannot remember which way home is. They can't put the pieces together. Now, the real problem with Alzheimer's is that when people experience these much more catastrophic losses of memory, they know that it's not right. It feels wrong to them, and they often feel very personally embarrassed. So the, the classic Alzheimer's patient may walk out into the room, see a bunch of strangers in their living room, but may then walk back into a bathroom or something like that rather than interacting because they feel very self-conscious, they know this isn't right, and they may try to escape the situation. But it's very different. So, so if, if any of your listeners are just feeling like, you know, my memory's getting worse, I can't remember somebody's name, I can't remember where my keys are, if that's the extent of their memory issues, then they really shouldn't be overly worried about anything like Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's, they will feel that something happened that was just wrong to the core. And, and that's what they have to attend to. If they feel that kind of thing, they have to try to overcome the self-consciousness and reach out for help. Right. Now, in the way that uh, you pointed out that there were things that could be done to the young people anyway in exercising and memory and getting better at ways in which um, the brain uh, recreates memories, what about people who are aging? Can we improve our brain's performance in matters like storing and recreating memories? Yeah, absolutely. I, and and I, think we, I think there's some really kind of nice ways of doing it. So, so let me kind of attach this to a nice story. I mentioned that as people age, they tend to worry less about details. Well, another group of individuals that show the same pattern even before they're aged are creative individuals. Creative people seem to worry less about details and sometimes will spend more time attending to things that are not so central, which older people will do as well. And in fact, some people have argued that as we age, it is kind of like our mind is transitioning into the more creative style of interacting with the world. So if we take that idea and we combine it with this notion of practice, 
but practice of the right memory system. So I already kind of poo-pooed uh, crossword puzzles a little bit, which I don't want to do too much. But crossword puzzles exercise the wrong kind of memory if, if we're worried about our episodic memory. What we want is something that makes us relive past experiences. And a really good example I like to mention is something like taking dance lessons, for example. If you were to do something like that when you're older, that's kind of exercising the creative side. You're getting physical exercise. But more important than that, when you take dance lessons, your instructor teaches you all these steps that have to be done in a specific order. You then have to try to do those things, which is memory retrieval. When you're out on the floor trying to do especially the tango, my goodness, I don't know if anyone's tried the tango, but that's a lot of steps in a row. If you're trying to dance the tango, you have to remember all of these steps. And in doing that, in trying to relive past experiences and engaging in activities that ask us to do that, we can exercise this memory system in a way that's a whole lot more fun than worrying about all the details of work. We can find hobbies that require us to use our memory system. So I think that's the best thing people can do. So in other words, creativity, if I can use that to describe what you've been talking about, learning new things that require a degree of precision and not bothering with details uh, of, of daily things. Maybe I'm oversimplifying. That's the way to go for those of us who are aging. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I find ironic when I'm asked to talk about these issues is typically the people that I'm talking to are, are already doing the right thing. The, the kinds of people that listen to your show are the kinds of people who are seeking out new information and, and trying to learn new things, which they can then apply uh, in their day-to-day -day life and, in, in your case, in their interaction with the, with the people they're giving care to. That's exactly the, the right kind of process. So, so to an extent, the people I'm talking to are probably already on the right path. If they can redo that in other situations, especially in things they find enjoyable, then fantastic. That's, that's exactly the road I would, uh, I would recommend traveling. That's a very nice piece of foot feedback. Now, it is time to take the break again. So this is Dr. Gordon Atley, and my guest is Steve Jordan. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back to talk more about those kinds of things. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Listen for MD Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel. That's Muscular Development Radio. Every Monday, your host, Sean Ray, will take you inside the world of bodybuilding and health and fitness. The show will feature Hall of Fame bodybuilders, trainers, judges, and the future champions of tomorrow. Plus, you'll be invited to participate in our call-in Ask the Pros feature. And our nutritional spotlight will feature products that can help you achieve your fitness goals. 
HMD Radio is broadcast live Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Steve Jordan. Our topic is memory and memories. Now, I would like to explore with you and our guests some aspects of the things that you think we should all understand about aging and memory, um, it's really echoing what we, you were saying in the previous segment about the things we should worry about or shouldn't worry about. So let me put a question to you this way. We often hear as we age that if we don't use our mental capabilities, we'll lose them. How true is that? And what is it specifically true for in the kind, relative to the kind of things you've been talking about. Yeah, well, well, I think it's, it's an important thing to realize that I think most of the scientific community believes that, um, that notion, that you, the use it or lose it notion. It's been a very difficult thing to do, the, the perfect experiment that we would like to do, because in, in a perfect world what we would do is, is take some people, I guess, of middle age and randomly assign them to conditions where some people are actually using... Their, their faculties a lot and others are not, um, and then ultimately look at the difference in these people down the road. But, of course, people being people, they don't want to spend 20 years doing what you tell them to do or not doing what you tell them to do. So we end up with correlational sort of studies. So we know, for example, that, that well, people like professors um, who do spend a lot of time solving problems and working through things and learning um, new things as, as they uh, go in their career, they tend to have less uh, reduction in memory capabilities. As, I, I hate to call it deterioration because I think that gives the wrong impression. But they, they hold on to their memory capabilities longer and, and a lot of professions that seem to require continuous thought. So there seems to be something to it. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and, um, you know, from uh, right back to the peer scholar stuff, I talked about where if we want to develop capabilities, we definitely believe that repeated practice is the way to develop it. So it seems... It seems reasonable to say that would be what would sustain it as well. Okay. Now, let's talk about family caregivers caring for aging parents. They worry about changes in their parents' memories. What, what do you believe that family caregivers should understand about the effects of normal aging on memory and memories of seniors? And I'm talking about seniors that are perhaps in their 70s rather than in their 60s. What about right. that? Right. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the important things to understand is that some of the, uh, the... There's a distinction between a couple of kinds of memory errors, some of them which may be a little frustrating to the person who has to interact with them, but overall is, is not really something um, 
that deserves real concern. And that would be the kinds of things like the parent who tells you the same story repeatedly. Um, you know, that can be a little, it can be hard to look interested in the same story when you've heard it many times, but really no harm is, is being done in that situation. And if that's the kind of symptom, there's no reason to worry. The more worrying sorts are, are when it gets to a situation where perhaps somebody um, turns a stove on and then forgets they're turning a stove on or, or leaves an iron on. And th- those sort of situations are ones where, you know, there could literally be danger involved in, in the forgetting. Um, and so I, I would urge caregivers to kind of, when they worry about memory loss, um, to, to look at those and, and kind of categorize them. And the ones that do involve potential danger, those are the ones where the older person really has to be pushed to attend a lot more. So maybe the iron has to be um, put in a very strange location that requires somebody to assist the patient. So maybe, you know, up too high for them or something, so that it has to become an event now to get the iron and turn it on. Um, or maybe the stove, you can put tape over something or, or whatnot. Whatever you can use to try to make the event of, of these da- potentially dangerous acts more attention demanding uh, and, and therefore make them more likely that the memory of that event occurring is, is there. So I think that would be the, the biggest thing. When I you know, think about my mother who's aging, that, that's the kind of thing we try to look at. Which memory errors are just memory errors that are not harmful and which ones are ones that we really have to be thinking about and trying to do something about. Just a quick supplementary to that. What about warnings? Uh, that is to say, you know, a kind of alarm clock that goes off when the stuff has boiled for long enough on on the stove or what are yeah. things of that nature how useful are those well when, when it's that situation where where danger could be around then then they're very useful i mean the teapot is, is in a way the perfect system um, but very few are like the teapot so the teapot literally tells you hey you have to come and deal with me but uh, you know irons now shut off automatically so that's kind of nice but but in a lot of those situations yes i think it is useful to have um, alarms that tell you something needs to be turned off, but also, as I was kind of highlighting a little bit more, um, things that are put in place at the time when the person turns the item on to give them that practice of, oh, when I turn the oven on, I have to really take a few minutes and tell myself, you just turned the oven on, you're putting this dinner in, you know, 10 minutes from now it's going to be ready and you want to take it out. You can't what, what will happen with an older person is they'll do these things in, in what we would call absent-mindedly. They'll just throw it on and flip. Habit, habit will kind of control all the turning-on behavior. Uh, and if habit is in too good of a control and habit isn't lost as we age, then it can ha- cause these um, situations to happen. And, and so to some extent you have to get in there and make sure that the conscious memory system is paying attention to what the body is doing. Right. Now, this is the last question, and I want you to look back into your own research and into your discipline, psychology, and say to me, to the audience, please, that are listening to us, to us, what is the message you'd like to pass to family caregivers concerned about a loved one's memory and memories? What's the message for them? Um, well, the, I think the biggest message that we, we have now is to, first of all, think of it as 
cognitive transition, to, to realize that at various points in our life, we literally change the way we interact with the world. Um, so, you know, as, as another example, when we go from being a single person to a married person, we change a lot of not only the way we behave, but also the things we prioritize and, and, and the way we think about things. Aging is a form of cognitive transition. And so they, they should not constantly be trying to compare a 70-year-old with a 45-year-old and look at the things that are not there or that are disappearing. They should just embrace the 70-year-old as a 70-year-old and realize that there will be things that they may lose, capabilities they may lose, including memory capabilities, but that they probably also have an interaction with the world that is that is nice and pleasant and peaceful on other levels if, if they compare the stresses and worries, for example, that the 40-year-old is under with the 70-year-old, um, then maybe you'll see a benefit as well to the aging process. So I think that would be the, the big picture, that it's not all, it shouldn't be viewed as, as just decline and um, some sort of deterioration of, of memory, but instead should be viewed as more of a transition. A sort of transition from one phase of your life to another, that is a, it's a change. I'm only repeating back to you, Steve, what you've just said. Mm -hmm. um, a, a change, change does not mean deterioration, loss, or gloom, but rather adjustment to a new phase. Is that right? That, that, that's right. And another quick example that, that I sometimes use is if we imagine a young boy who's a singer. When that young boy goes through puberty, um, he may gain height, he may gain weight, he may gain a variety of things, and he may lose his angelic voice. Right. It's, it's just the transition that occurs, and, and often transitions have pros and cons. Yeah, life's like that. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Steve, first of all, thank you, but I'll come back to you in a moment. I just want to say thank you to our listeners. Please do email us with your comments and questions, which I'll gladly pass on to Steve. And I want to say thank you to Steve for sharing with us your experience and your insights and your advice, and also to offer you, on behalf of all of us, continued success in your work, because it's, I think this is absolutely crucial, this work. And if I could just make a comment back to you, it is that, you know, we hear a lot from my profession, I'm a physician, was, uh, about the gloomy stuff, um, about how things deteriorate and the rest of it. What you've done, is to say, look, there are phases, there are changes, there are natural progressions of things that shouldn't worry us, though we do need to understand them, yet there are things that we should be on our guard for. So that's a very powerful message, which I'd like to um, emphasize to our listeners, is extraordinarily important and insightful. And for that reason alone, we all want you to go on with your research. Thank you. Now, in our next episode, we're going to talk about young adults, mental health, and the justice system. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.